Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 40. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 2nd, 2021 in Austin, Texas. We're a bit late this week, as reported on the Facebook page for the podcast. To borrow from Jackson Brown, we're caught between the longing for love of our devoted listeners and the struggle for the legal tender. We'll get back on schedule during October. Pace of work's going to go down a lot. Before we get to the history fun, a bit of a request. If you guys think of movie or television clips that would be funny to cut into the History of the Americans podcast, somehow, some way, by all means, send me your ideas. You can do that via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by sending me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. I'll give the winning clip submitters a shout-out on the podcast, unless you say you prefer anonymity. This episode is Set Fair for Roanoke, Part 2. Okay, Part 2. Last week, we looked at the geopolitical and political situation in 1583-84, Sir Walter Raleigh had become England's leading organizer and promoter of North American colonization, assembled a team of luminaries around him, and dispatched a reconnaissance mission under Arthur Barlow and Philip Amadis to the outer banks of today's North Carolina. Amadis' ship was too big to sail the inland waterway, so he explored the ocean side, entered the Chesapeake, probably got in a tussle with the Powhatans who guarded the entrance to that bay, and then set out for the Azores on a failed quest for Spanish prizes to plunder. Arthur Barlow's pinnace, however, arrived home in September 1584 with important information that would catalyze further exploration. Barlow's eloquent journal described Roanoke Island and the Outer Banks as a land of great opportunity, lots of food and timber and supportive or at least quiescent Indians. As consequentially, Barlow had brought along two Indians from different tribal groups, Monteo from Croatoan to the south of Roanoke, and one cheese, a subject of Wingina, the chief of the dominant tribal group in the area. There are today towns in North Carolina named after both men. Even on the voyage home, Thomas Harriet, effectively the science officer for the expedition, had already begun to crack the language wall by teaching Monteo and Wanchis some English and learning some Algonquin himself. Between Barlow's journal, which was edited and circulated in Elizabeth's court as pro-colonization propaganda, and Monteo and Wanchis, now part of Raleigh's team and paraded around London speaking their very basic English, the case for a settlement at the Outer Banks had been made. Let us pause briefly at this point and review the geopolitical and economic case for North American colonization, then being pushed by the expansionists on Elizabeth's Privy Council. Quoting myself which is a delicate way of saying repeating myself, for the benefit of our less attentive or retentive listeners, a rising faction in England saw the colonization of the Atlantic coast of North America as having the potential to address multiple problems at once. 
Most importantly, England wanted a forward base from which its privateers could resupply and refit, which would significantly increase the time they could operate against Spanish shipping in the Caribbean and across the Atlantic. North American colonies were also seen as having the potential to diversify English markets. North America was thought to contain valuable raw materials, and successful and growing colonies might turn into a new market for English manufacturers. Finally, England needed a place to send its surplus population, including the unemployed poor displaced by enclosure of the pastures and the decline of the woolen cloth trade, and English Catholics, whom the Elizabethans wanted to get rid of, but did not want to deport to Europe for fear they would be recruited by France or Spain to, quote, annoy England in return. All of this having been well understood by the flower and chivalry of Her Majesty's government, Raleigh, now a member of Parliament for Plymouth, proposed that Parliament enact a bill confirming the Queen's patent and his own authority, which would be a helpful boost in raising the funds necessary for a large expedition of settlement. The House of Commons, in fact, did this, and the passing of Raleigh's bill in that house would mark the first time that Parliament had addressed any issue of North American settlement. It would spend more and more time over the next 200 years on the topic. The House of Lords did not, in the end, take up the bill, probably, according to David Beers Quinn, because the Lords would have seen no reason to confirm, circumscribe, or expand the Queen's patent. But Raleigh got what he needed. In the process of lobbying for the bill, he attracted considerable interest in his Roanoke expedition from all the right people. On January 6, 1585, Elizabeth I knighted Raleigh and granted him the right to name the land in his domain up to 1,800 miles of North American coastline and all that lay behind it, Virginia, in her honor. This entitled Raleigh to a coat of arms, which was all the rage back then, and there inscribe his title, Lord and Governor of Virginia, only in Latin, so it read Domini Gubernatoris Virginiae, or something like that. The classicists in our audience, and I know you are out there, are no doubt cringing. In the planning for the expedition, Raleigh was at the receiving end, of a great deal of advice. Some of it good, some of it not. And that was good advice. Good advice. Good advice costs nothing and it's worth the price. I sincerely doubt that the world could do without my good advice. Alan Sherman had something useful to say about that, and if you don't get the reference... It is because you are a young person and need to know who Alan Sherman was and listen to his songs. Anyway, Raleigh got input from various sources, much of which looks obvious today, but might not have been then. Here's how to build a fortification. Consider bringing along people who have a wide variety of skills, such as metallurgy and mining and doctoring and so forth. All that sort of thing. No doubt much of it was in conversation, none of which would survive. But much of it was in writing, and some of that does. Either on the basis of inbound kibitzing or on his own initiative, 
Raleigh made the important decision that Thomas Harriet and John White would go on the expedition with, quote, special responsibilities that would heavily influence what we now know about the Indians in the region. Here's Quinn's account. Harriet and White were to note down and draw everything that would be of interest and importance. The Indian villages, cornfields and gardens, techniques for catching fish, religious edifices and ceremonies, types of individuals and their ranks, together with specimens and drawings of plants, animals, fish, minerals, and any other materials that could be of value in building up a picture of the country, as well as to survey the ground in detail and make a general map of the area. A detailed plan for just such a survey had been prepared for one of the voyages planned by Sir Humphrey Gilbert in 1582, but of course had never been implemented. But it is not unlikely that it was revived and modified for use in 1585. Such a survey had never yet been attempted for any part of North America, and it did not follow precisely any precedents set by the Spanish. Harriet was already learning as much Algonquin as he could from Monteo and Wanchis. By the time the expedition reached its destination, he would be in sufficient command of the language to make extensive inquiries among the local people so as to enable him to compile a full discourse on their society and artifacts on his return. This was important evidence that the expedition of 1585 was designed as a foundation for future expansion, essentially a reconnaissance in force, rather than a true colony. There was much more such evidence, including that the 1585 colony would be all male. In today's terms, not sustainable. Richard Hacklight the Older contributed two memos advising Raleigh, much of it ill-informed. Quinn thinks that Hacklight wrote one of them as a public relations gambit, writing about the local Indians, quote, the people be well proportioned in their limbs, well favored, gentle, of a mild and tractable disposition, apt to submit themselves to good government and ready to embrace the Christian faith. This was probably propaganda as much as anything else. At this point, English leaders were bought into the, quote, black legend, which was something between a perception and a deliberate characterization of Spanish perfidy in the New World. It was valuable to the English and other Protestants to demonize the Spanish, who were manifestly their enemy. The introduction to the Wikipedia entry on the black legend pretty much captures the concept. Quote, the black legend is a theorized historiographical tendency consisting of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic propaganda. Its proponents claim that its roots date back to the 16th century, when it was originally a political and psychological weapon that was used by Spain's European rivals in order to demonize the Spanish Empire, its people and culture, minimize Spanish discoveries and achievements, and counter its influence and power in world affairs. Now it is obvious that the English of the late 16th century had a dim view of the Spanish Empire, and in some cases thought it their duty to do better, as kids today might direct on social media. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Sir Francis Drake was willing to believe the Spanish capable of any amount of duplicity and cruelty, and that he had resolved to do better. 
when Indians ambushed Drake and some of his men on the island of Mocha off the coast of Chile and hacked two of his men to pieces. Drake refused the clamor from his crew to retaliate with cannon fire, attributing the violence of the Indians to the brutality of the Spanish. Drake would go on to make it his business to free Indians as well as blacks who had been enslaved by the Spanish and Portuguese, and not only because freeing them would hurt his enemy. Drake's view, certainly by the 1580s, was that England should interact with Indians differently. Today, of course, the politics of this have shifted a bit, and it is much more fashionable, certainly in academic circles, to attribute perfidy to the English and to elevate Hispanic culture. Not surprisingly, there is now a school of thought that the black legend was just so much anti-Spanish propaganda, part of the broader English and Dutch strategy of resistance to Spanish hegemony. It is indeed possible to identify evidence for this point of view. In a separate letter, probably intended only for Raleigh, the very same Richard Hacklite struck an entirely different tone. Quoting Quinn, writing about Hacklite's letter now, If the Indians oppose the English that seek but just and lawful traffic, then severe measures should be taken against them. Alliances could be made by one group against another so as to divide and conquer. If this did not suffice, we will proceed with extremity, conquer, fortify, and plant in soils most sweet, most pleasant, most strong, and most fertile, and in the end, bring them all in subjection and to civility. My own view, with a caveat that I disclaim actual expertise on the black legend debate, is that various things can be true at once. Yes, the Spanish had committed horrendous atrocities in the New World in the 90 years since Columbus and would go on to do for at least two more centuries. In this respect, the black legend was true enough that it was indeed motivating for Protestants in England and elsewhere who by the 1580s were under siege by Catholic Spain almost everywhere and who thought their purported heresy was the true path to salvation. Spanish enslavement of Indians and other heinous brutality had been documented by Bartolome de las Casas, the conquistador-turned-Dominican friar who had become the famous protector of the Indians. And it wasn't just the enslavement and depopulation of Indians— the Spanish had wantonly massacred French Protestants at Fort Caroline only 20 years before. Finally, for long-standing listeners, there had been the pre-Columbian conquest of the Canaries and the enslavement and genocide of the native Guanches in the 15th century. There is no doubt that Spain richly deserved her bad reputation among the Protestants of Northern Europe in the 1580s, and that fact was also useful for sustaining English and Protestant morale when Spain was dominant and on the offensive. Of course, the black legend can have been fundamentally true, but there remains the separate question of English behavior in light of it. In all such situations, there will be people who want to rise above the enemy's bad behavior, and there will also be those who call for fighting fire with fire, that to win, the tactics of the enemy must be emulated in the service of victory in the existential struggle. You see a lot of that in today's politics. Drake, pirate and privateer that he was, seems to have believed in rising above. 
Richard Hacklite, the elder, esteemed lawyer in the Middle Temple, suggests in his private letter to Raleigh that he was more willing to sink to the level of the Spanish, at least in the service of defending England against Philip II's campaign to extinguish Protestant heresy. If Indians had to die to secure an English base in the New World, Hacklite believed that would be an acceptable price to pay. Easy for him to say, of course, but one can see the same logic play out in much more modern contexts. In resisting Soviet expansionism, the West promulgated a black legend of sorts against the Soviet Union. It was fundamentally true, and also used to justify sacrificing innocent people caught in the crossfire along the way toward the greater good of resolving the Cold War without nuclear holocaust. We can acknowledge and regret the crimes of our ancestors without also believing that the enemy only appeared horrendous because of propaganda. If somebody today were to argue that Western propaganda during the Cold War was wrong or invalid because it, quote, demonized Soviet people and, quote, minimized the culture and achievements of Soviet communists, I'd say they were weaponizing history to win a contemporary political argument. So it is, I believe, with people of today who want to say that the Spanish Empire wasn't as bad as it was cracked up to be. It manifestly was. Of course, the English as a nationality would, as decades passed and geopolitical interests shifted, reveal themselves as hypocrites. The descendants of the Elizabethans would go on to do brutal things in North America and the Caribbean, usually with much less creditable motives than national survival, which were the stakes in the 1580s. Again, however, the fact of subsequent hypocrisy does not mean that the core tenets of the 16th century version of the black legend were not true. Finally, notwithstanding the steaming pile of nuance I just served up to you, it must be said that the historians who have done the work to describe black legend propaganda are making an argument that should be made. It is a useful perspective, and contending with new perspectives is how history develops. My objection is extending the black legend argument, at least as it manifested in the 16th century, beyond its context, now that our modern political theorists want to portray Hispanic culture as a product of victimization rather than imperialism. That is an example of what I mean by presentism. Okay, rant over. Back to 1585. Raleigh intensely wanted to go on the expedition that he was organizing, but Elizabeth I, who valued him as a friend and companion, though probably not as a lover, forbade him to go. Given the life expectancy of New World expeditionaries, that the Queen should order her favorite friend not to go on such a dangerous voyage strikes me as a gentle and human use of royal prerogative. It did, however, mean that Raleigh needed to pick a commander for the expedition he had planned and financed. He chose his cousin, Sir Richard Grenville. Now to James Horne's description of Grenville, who later will be revealed as well, something of a temperamental jerk. Twelve years older than Raleigh, from an old Cornish family related to the Drakes and the Gilberts, 
Grenville had seen fighting in Hungary against the Turks and in Munster, Ireland in the late 1560s. Several years later, he had taken an interest in Gilbert's American schemes and had petitioned the Queen to lead a voyage around the world. She ignored him, favoring Drake instead. In the spring of 1585, his close friendship with Raleigh, together with his military background and high political standing, made him an obvious choice to take charge of the voyage. But his arrogance and refusal to listen to advice would sorely try the patience of his subordinates. The Roanoke fleet of 1585 consisted of five ships and two pinnaces. Elizabeth had contributed the Tiger, a rework galleus variously reported at 140, 160, and 200 tons. A galleus, for those of you keeping track at home, was a fairly large capacity warship that combined sails and oars. Warsmen gave the galleus more agility in battle and the ability to maneuver when the wind wasn't blowing. Granville would command the Tiger, and the previously introduced Simon Fernandez would serve as his chief pilot and master. Colonel Ralph Lane, who would be in charge of the soldiers of the expedition, sailed on the Tiger, as did Philip Amatis, who was to act as admiral in the colony once it was established. The second ship, at least in size at 140 tons, was the Roebuck, a flyboat under the command of John Clark. The term flyboat is derived from Dutch vlieboot, V-L-I-E-B-O-O-T, apologies for the Dutch pronunciation, a boat with a shallow enough draft to be able to navigate a shallow fly, V-L-I-E, or river estuary. The Roebuck would be important for squeezing its way past the outer banks into Pamlico Sound. The 100-ton Red Lion was under the command of George Raymond of Weymouth, who, per Quinn, was to prove unreliable. The 50-ton Elizabeth was under the command of 25-year-old Thomas Cavendish, who just the next year would emulate Sir Francis Drake's circumnavigation by sailing into the Pacific plundering the Spanish, and returning home nine months faster than Drake. He was to be the high marshal or top judicial officer of the 1585 Roanoke expedition. Young people grew up quickly in the 1580s. They also died young. Cavendish would die only six years later at age 31 in a failed attempt to reprise the triumph of his voyage of 1586 to 1588. 26-year-old leading a voyage around the world in the 1580s, plundering the Spanish and getting home faster than Drake. Astonishing. Finally, the 50-ton Dorothy, which belonged to Raleigh, was probably under the command of Arthur Barlow, but we do not know for sure. There were also two pinnaces for local exploration, probably 25 tons each, which would have been attached to one of the larger ships. There were roughly 600 men along, including soldiers and a wide variety of skilled tradesmen, carpenters, coopers and such, and experts in metallurgy and mining. According to Raleigh's plan, around 300 men would remain to occupy the settlement, and the balance would come home back to England, once it had been set up. The fleet sailed from Plymouth on April 9th, 1585. 
After a fast dash across the Bay of Biscay and around the top of Spain, it was hit by a major storm off the coast of Portugal. The fleet was scattered, and the pinnace attached to the Tiger sank, consigning an unknown number of men to Davy Jones' locker. The Tiger, now alone, proceeded south to the Canaries and then caught the trades across, making Dominica and the Lesser Antilles on May 7th an exceptionally fast crossing from England, notwithstanding the storm. Devoted and attentive listeners will recall that on his impressively fast first voyage, Columbus, leaving from Seville, had reached the Bahamas in 33 days. The plan had anticipated the accidental separation of the fleet and had designated a rendezvous on the uninhabited southwest coast of Puerto Rico. The Tiger dropped anchor in Guayanilla Bay on May 11th. Grenville set Lane to work building a temporary fortification and mounted guns against an attack overland from the Spanish. John White actually drew a map of this fortification, so it's one of the reasons why we know everything that so many of White's documents had been preserved. Grenville also needed to replace the pinnace, so the men built a forge to make nails, cut down trees, sawed them into boards, and within a couple of weeks had built it. A remarkable accomplishment. This was not a small rowboat. On May 19th, Cavendish and the Elizabeth arrived at the rendezvous, but none of the other three ships made it to Puerto Rico. They would materialize off the Outer Banks in mid-June, about the same time the Tiger and Elizabeth arrived, having engaged in their own adventurism. Shortly thereafter, still before the end of May, the Tiger and the Elizabeth left Guayanilla Bay and sailed into the Mona Passage between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. They grabbed two small Spanish prizes and then went ashore, Lane in one ship at Puerto Rico and Grenville with the other in Hispaniola. They bartered the cloth and other captured goods and ransomed the prisoners back to the Spanish in exchange for livestock for the colony, including hogs, calves, and horses. John White and others obtained cuttings of plants that they hoped might grow on the Outer Banks, such as sugarcane. Suffice it to say that, notwithstanding their reconnaissance and understanding of latitude, the English did not appreciate the degree of the difference in climate between Puerto Rico and Cape Hatteras. At this point, Grenville's fleet was back up to five ships, the Tiger, the Elizabeth, the newly constructed Pinnace, and the two small Spanish prizes. On June 7th, they headed north, tracked along the way by local Indians who kept the now-alerted Spanish abreast of the fleet's journey. When Spanish intelligence officials had collated the Indian reports and depositions of the sailors ransomed back in Puerto Rico, they concluded that Grenville had sailed beyond their northernmost port on that coast at St. Helena on Paris Island, just across from Hilton Head. On June 23rd, the fleet reached the Outer Banks and, after probing for a channel into the inland waterway, tried to enter on June 26th, somewhere south of Hatteras. Grenville's crew blew the soundings, and the Tiger ran aground in a bar, for which Grenville berated Simon Fernandez. In the course of floating her, a large amount of the colony's food stores were exposed to salt water and ruined— How exactly this happened is unclear from the journal, but the consequences would be decisive. 
It is now early July 1585, and a bunch of things are happening at once. On June 16th, a week before Grenville and Cavendish arrived in the area, the missing Red Lion, under the command of the unreliable George Raymond, had arrived along the same coast a few miles to the north. There, Raymond had unceremoniously dumped 30 or so of his men on shore and bugged out for Newfoundland, where he hoped to grab Spanish prizes. The 30 had split up and were now wandering around the Outer Banks looking for food and hoping not to be killed by Wingina's tribe. Meanwhile, the other two missing ships, the Roebuck and the Dorothy, had arrived at a different spot and were expecting Grenville to show up. As the expedition's hot mess of a rendezvous was unfolding in North Carolina, the geopolitical confrontation between England and Spain was heating up across the Atlantic. Philip II had finally lost his patience with all the piratical pricks, double entendre very intended, poking at the edges of his empire, and in early May closed his ports to English merchants. Elizabeth responded by stamping out letters of Mark as fast as her scribes could scribble them up, which legitimized those pirates under English law. She also authorized Sir Francis Drake to assemble a huge fleet, perhaps as many as 30 ships, to sail against Spanish interests in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. Which expedition would depart in September and will occupy a good bit of next week's episode. England and Spain were now functionally at war, though it would never be declared, and would remain so until 1604, after Elizabeth's death. The Anglo-Spanish War of 1585 to 1604 would be of surpassing importance to the history of the Americans, but very bad news for Raleigh's dreams of empire in the new land of Virginia. Now, Raleigh's original plan had called for a follow-on fleet under the command of Amias Preston and Bernard Drake, no relation to Francis, with another couple of hundred colonists and a pile of supplies to leave England for North Carolina that spring, hot on the heels of Grenville's main fleet. By early June, it was ready to depart, but on June 20th, Her Majesty ordered Preston and Drake to go to Newfoundland instead. This turned out to be a smart move for Elizabeth because they would team up with a deserting George Raymond and the Red Lion and grab as many as 20 Spanish and Portuguese ships between there and the Azores. Philip II would be forced to recall his fishing fleet from Newfoundland and his navy would thereby be deprived of dried cod on which they had come to depend for victuals. Unfortunately, the hundreds of Englishmen now looking for a place to settle down on the Outer Banks had no idea that the ship sent to resupply them would never arrive. This seems like a good place to stop for today. Next week, we will learn the fate of the Grenville expedition, which would become the first Roanoke colony, and follow Francis Drake's mission into the region, which would eventually reach Roanoke itself. Thank you again for listening. As always, please share this podcast on social media by all the various means at your disposal. Or, even better, tell your buddies about the History of the Americans podcast the next time you are out for beers. Follow us via our website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or on our Facebook page, The History of the Americans Podcast. 
And by all means, send me comments, corrections, pats on the back, and eruptions of outrage by email to the History of the Americans at gmail.com. <laughs>